Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. The 2021 Canadian federal election is now over, and Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are returned to power. In his victory speech, the Prime Minister said to Canadians, you are sending us back to work with a clear mandate. And what we've seen tonight is that millions of Canadians have chosen a progressive plan. But in the case of safer nicotine products, such as vaping, what is the Liberal plan? Joining us today to discuss this question is a man who hardly needs introduction, Clive Bates, tobacco control policy expert and former director of action on smoking and health UK. Clive, thanks for coming back on the show. Brent, it's great to be back on. Always love talking to you on RegWatch. Well, thanks for that. So Clive, nicotine vaping was made legal in Canada back in May 2018 by actually the Justin Trudeau led Liberals. But now things are not looking so good. In your opinion, watching what's going on in Canada and the potential flavor ban, the nicotine concentrations and so forth, is it still going to be legal? Well, I mean, it, it's so uh, frustrating. In, in many ways, Canada was staking out leadership territory in this area. Uh, there was a very thoughtful pro-harm reduction, pro-consumer approach to this in 2018. Um, and then something happened, and we can go into that. And there was a kind of flip. And now we've got politicians, officials, uh, all kind of trying to take the most restrictive measures that they can, um, as if that's somehow a good public health strategy. There's no evidence for anything that they're doing. And actually, there's good evidence that what they're doing will end up with more smoking uh, and, you know, less vaping, but more smoking. And it's just incredibly prone to unintended consequences, the sort of stuff that they're meddling in. Um, you know, you're dealing with hundreds of thousands, maybe maybe millions of people ultimately who could use these products if they were allowed to be appealing alternatives to cigarettes. But if your basic underlying strategy is to make them unappealing, don't be surprised if more people use cigarettes. So that's where we are. And I'm hopeful, I mean, I'm always hopeful, and so far I'm always wrong, that uh, governments will listen to evidence, they ask for evidence in consultation. We and many others have put in fairly detailed submissions explaining all the evidence and pointing out how what they're doing is likely to make things worse rather than better. If they listen to that, they would definitely change course. But will they listen? That's a matter for politics. The stuff that was coming out of Canada in 2018 was world leading. It was groundbreaking. Um, there were thoughtful, committed officials and politicians behind it, and they were driving in the right direction. And they suddenly got this paper that came out that said, oh dear, uh, youth vaping and youth smoking have both gone up. Um, and everybody went slammed on the brakes. Uh, there was a kind of handbrake turn and a reversal into the opposite direction. Um, the little known secret about that paper is that it was wrong. Um, youth smoking hadn't gone up, it had gone down quite sharply. Um, but unfortunately, from that time on, the officials and ministers involved bought into a much more hostile approach to vaping based on a false premise built into a flawed paper uh, that has since been corrected, but never properly retracted. Now, that's that paper, of course, that we covered uh, back in spring of 2019, I believe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one one particular piece of research has had lasting damage then. 
That is that is my impression. Uh, that I date I date the reversal um, in the attitude in Canada to that paper. But then you know what happens, Bren, is that once people have decided they're changing tune, they're then looking for evidence to justify that. So what what you happen what happens is the the intuition comes first based on that paper. It's like, oh my God, we must do something. And then the reasoning falls in behind it. So you see them borrowing many of the arguments from the United States about about flavors from the European Union, about nicotine caps and so on. Um, So what's happened is that paper, I think, precipitated a change. But then once the change had been made, everybody, everybody involved in making it then goes in to try and make that look like a credible position. And that's that's how you end up with the, you know, insanely flawed policy position that they presented on the flavor ban, which is just, uh, you know, it's got no substance to it at all, but it's an attempt to create a, a rationale for banning uh, flavors. Even though, you know, not far away in in San Francisco, you see a flavor ban as an actual example of a flavor ban. Look what happened. Teenage smoking went up, whereas it continued to fall in similar districts that didn't implement a flavor ban. Now, you've got an actual empirical study there that reinforces the evidence case that people like me have been making and really completely blows a hole in Health Canada's case for the flavor ban. Will they look at that and think, oh, my God, we may have this wrong? Or more likely, will they try and rationalize it away? Will they come up with sort of, well, that doesn't apply here or we don't like that story or there's something wrong with the data or something? Any sensible government would pause and go, "Uh oh, we could have made a major mistake here. We better rethink. Uh, And especially since we made that mistake originally on the basis of a flawed paper. So clearly, this is about teen vaping, uh, trying to keep vaping away from youth, a part of the whole epidemic scare. And then, of course, there was the Evali issue on vaping related lung illness. And of course, there was a bunch of misinformation around that, too, as well. So, I mean, on every corner that you turn and you look, there's major pieces of misinformation that have been driving this hysteria and moving us towards these bans at some point. When you start to look at that, do you not see that there might be some intention going on? Well, you know, I, I work I worked in government myself for for about ten years, uh, Brent, and you know, evil conspiracy theories implemented through officials and ministers are, are not really as common as sort of blundering on with cock up and incompetence and. Essentially, what one of, one of the things that's overvalued in government is consistency. Um, you know, sensible people, John Maynard Keynes would say, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? In government, it's like, I was right then, I'm right now, and I will always be right. And I will continue to find evidence that shows that I've been right all along and my views can't be challenged. And I think that's that's more likely to be an explanation here. It's a cultural thing about consistency in policymaking. We said this before, if we now have to admit it's wrong, 
that would be a bad thing and we'll have embarrassed our ministers and we'll embarrass ourselves in front of the press. So we must press on with our theory that we were right all along. Uh, and that's why you get this trying to fill in the reason, the problem of trying to fill in the reasoning behind a position rather than looking at looking at what the reasoning tells you and then forming your position, in which case you would not do what they're doing in, Canada, in Health Canada at the moment. Yeah, because that certainly is an actual uh, change of position dramatically, in fact. Let me ask you this. Back in 2019, when we were first covering what seemed to be a change that was going on in Health Canada, it felt that the pressure groups, uh, the nonprofit health groups and so forth here in Canada, same as the ones basically in the U.S. and elsewhere in the globe, that they were they were creating a, 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 a pressure that was almost a bullying like almost going at Health Canada saying, you got this wrong, you really screwed this up, the things that you've done are really hurting Canadian kids and so forth, you have to do something. So are we not actually witnessing a massive pressure campaign uh, by a small group of special interests that are pushing on Health Canada? Of course, it's to save the children, but that's just you know the thing they're pressing. Yeah, I think that's a very good description of what we're seeing. I mean, there's a relatively small group of, um, you know, comfortable professionals who who work in this field, and they know what they want. Uh, they know they know that they like. They have a certain kind of playbook. Uh, it involves tools that are punitive, restrictive, coercive, uh, stigmatizing, and so on. And that's what they go to work and and like to do. And the new thing has come up, uh, vaping. It's like, well, you know, let's not embrace that. Let's go to war with it, because that's what we do. We do wars with tobacco and tobacco-like things. So I, I think what they have done is that they've taken a very subtle thing, which is the, you know, let's call it the youth vaping epidemic. I think it's ridiculous terminology, but let's call it that because everyone does. Now, if they if they really cared about kids, okay, and I, my contention is they don't. That kids are useful to them in campaigns for the restrictive measures that are their real purpose. Okay, what they would have seen is that you have to drill down into the data on a youth epidemic, and you see a couple of things. First of all, you see most of the vaping is infrequent and frivolous, experimental, and not a deep public health concern. It's likely transient and will go away once those kids um, leave school or college, get jobs, get married or whatever, okay? Most of it is froth. But the interesting thing is that the frequent vaping is concentrated in kids who have smoked or otherwise would be smoking. Now, these are the kind of kids who really genuinely form the at-risk population. These are the kids who are most likely to go on to be smokers, other substance users, problems at school, mental health problems, delinquency, come from difficult, tough backgrounds, tough neighborhoods, you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff about growing, growing up in a challenging environment if you're a young person. For those kids, and this is the thing that I'm sort of really can't forgive, um, you know, groups like Canadian Cancer Society for, if you really cared about those kids, you would see the harm reduction potential for them. You would see that vaping is a potential low-risk diversion from the substance use and smoking uh, patterns that they would otherwise be likely to follow. 
And that to me is absolutely reprehensible uh, and unethical. So at the core of what they're doing, talking up this youth vaping epidemic and getting Health Canada and ministers into a, a kind of frenzy is a deeply unethical proposition about the youth vaping epidemic, which ignores the findings that you get if you're willing to drill down into the, into the data. And it's also why you get results like we get the results in San Francisco. If you properly understood what was going on with youth, you would know that if you made vaping products less attractive, you would end up with more smoking. It's not a gigantic leap of logic to come up with that, yet it's one that they can't or more likely don't want to make because it doesn't serve their campaign, which is for indiscriminate restrictive measures, uh, whatever the effect of those measures are. So the government of Canada, Health Canada, the regulator, uh, put in place a nicotine concentration level, uh, a cap, a nic cap, uh, which, you know, was more than half. It decreased the amount of nicotine in vaping liquid by more than half. As a vapor, I can tell you that's a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, it gave zero time to see if that particular uh, mechanism uh, was going to help in the process. What are your thoughts on that? Because it was just a short time after then they 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 leveled the national flavor ban, which we're waiting on to find out whether or not if that's going to be implemented. And I think it's highly likely that it will be. And that'll just kill the industry. OK, so what is the argument for making vaping products a less effective replacement for cigarettes? I don't know what it is. Um, you know, but basically that's what they're doing. There's cigarettes on the market which have very high pharmacokinetic characteristics, the rate of delivery to the, the, the brain, the peak nicotine level that you get. Um, no, very few vaping products come close to that. But the ones that do and that are in a small and compact, easy to use format have to use high strength nicotine liquids or else they're just not competitive with cigarettes. So if you went to the Canadian government and said, listen, there's an entrant innovative product coming into the market, we think you ought to protect the extremely harmful incumbent by making sure that they can't deliver nicotine in anything like as an effective way as the cigarette. How do you feel about that? People would think you were insane. But that, in a sense, is what they've done. That's what's so frustrating. They're putting in these regulatory protections, whether it's a flavor ban or a nicotine cap, all they do is make cigarettes relatively less, uh, relatively more appealing and the, the much safer alternative to cigarettes relatively less appealing. How's that gonna end? And, and you know, and that isn't just a youth thing, that also applies to youth because young people become smokers as well. So I, I can't see the logic to it once you, understand even the rudiments of the data and the science behind how all of this works. You would never do such a thing. You would want your vaping products to knock out cigarettes from the market so that you had, you know, you dealt with the huge burden of disease and premature death that cigarettes cause, but they're going the other way. Now, I, I obviously some people will still find the lower strength products satisfactory, Good, good for them. But what it means is that Health Canada has basically cut out a bunch of the more dependent smokers 
or maybe the ones who need an easier, quicker route out of cigarettes and are not prepared to mess around with highly complicated vaping devices, it's knocked them out of the opportunity to switch. What for? I, I, I can't get an explanation uh, for that. Um, we know that if kids want a lot of nicotine, they can smoke. Um, and we know that some kids are already pretty addicted to nicotine through smoking, and they themselves may need stronger products. So when, when you start to look at what they're doing, the rationale for it falls apart completely because basically what they're doing is wrapping regulatory protections around the cigarette trade. Let's talk a little bit about the rationale. In a paper, Proposed Vaping Products Flavor Regulations, a response, which was you, uh, uh, Dr. Niara, uh, and David Sweener, um, and Dr. Abrams. All of you have been on our show, and you've been fantastic advocates for uh, evidence-based policy on this issue. So give us give us an understanding of what Health Canada has done here, because they, they've got a rationale that they put out in their cost-benefit analysis that if anybody really could understand this, they I would think they'd be shocked. Um. It, it's a masterpiece of sophistry, to be honest. Um, you, you look at this, you know, I used to work in government myself, and you get used to looking at these things. And you'll, you'll see, um, you know, 22 equations in their, their model, thousands of terms. Um, you'll, you'll see language that's impenetrable, tables of numbers that you can't quite follow. Um, and what you have to do is... <laughs> You have to go back to the original document, which they didn't put online. You had to actually go to Health Canada and ask for it. Um, so they didn't want anyone to, you know, see the sausages being made, if you if you like. Um, and then what you find is at the heart of all this sophisticated, fake sophisticated analysis is a giant assumption that vaping leads to smoking. Um, and therefore, if you re if you reduce vaping, you reduce future smoking. So the whole case, 93% of the benefits, the public health benefits of making vaping less attractive and banning flavours are in the form of reduced smoking. It's, it's really quite extraordinary, uh, Brent, because at the heart of this, there is a misunderstanding, uh, which is that they have failed to understand the data that shows, yes, there's an association between vaping and smoking, because people who vape and smoke, many of the same characteristics incline people to, this, to both vaping and smoking because they're similar behaviors. But that doesn't mean the vaping causes the smoking. Yet that is hardwired into the assumptions in their case. What they've done with the cost-benefit analysis is that they've counted up all the economic costs that they can, they can find. Fair enough, that's a reasonable thing to do. $560 million in present value terms, which is the way that they estimate these things. We don't need to go into that, okay? That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for just banning something, okay? Then what they've done is they've said, well, how much would vaping uh, initiation need to decrease in order for the public health benefits to equal or exceed 
$560 million, okay? And they've estimated that a 1.1% reduction in the initiation of vaping would cause those savings. But you're like, where's that number come from? How come, how come a reduction in vaping causes so, many, so much sort of public health benefits? And you realize then that they've made this assumption that everyone who vapes has a, a six to seven times chance of going on to be a smoker which is a complete misreading of the data, the kind of misreading of data that you get when you farm these assessments out to consultants. So they've totally misunderstood the gateway effect, which is, which is not a gateway effect. It's what we call common liability. The, the reason you see an association between vaping and smoking is that the characteristics of the the person and their circumstances incline them to both vaping and smoking. It's not the vaping causing the smoking. So basic schoolboy error has been made in this. And they have therefore assumed that if you reduce vaping, you reduce smoking. Whereas actually vaping is a substitute for smoking. And generally, if you increase vaping, you get less smoking. And therefore the exact opposite of the effect that they've used to justify the measure in their cost-benefit analysis. Now, I hope that's not too obscure, and I'm happy to explain it again if you if you would if you would like me to take it more slowly. No, I think we're in a good spot, and and let me just add because there's the hook here, unless I'm mistaken. But if they basically are saying you know vaping leads to smoking, and then if you're a smoker, that leads to morbidity, death. Yeah, and it's that, that, and it's that, the that's... death. It's the death. Uh, an illness where the cost comes in and that's where the cost savings is. So you, you, by you're spot on, Brent. Uh, the the essentially what they're saying is if we if we use this is the chain of reasoning and it's all complete rubbish. The chain of reasoning is we get rid of flavors, that makes vaping uh, less appealing to kids. Fewer kids will initiate on vaping. Therefore, fewer of them will go on to migrate from vaping to smoking via a gateway effect, which doesn't exist. Um, and therefore, the costs in terms of premature mortality and morbidity will be lower. Uh, and we can we can make a numerical estimate of those. We, the statistical techniques for valuing the costs of disease and premature death in, in turning it into money. When we put those numbers in, uh, to our model, we find that we quite easily exceed the economic cost of $560 million because we place quite a high value on life and, and disease. <laughs> but the problem is the central premise of that chain of reasoning is complete nonsense, that you will get a gateway effect. What actually happens with vaping is you get a diversion effect and you get less smoking, not more. So they're basically saying that vaping equals smoking, smoking equals death. So if we can prevent vaping, we can prevent smoking deaths. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's what they're doing. And it's totally wrong. And you go back to the San Francisco example, and you can see when they put the flavor ban in there, smoking went up. You know, the, the, the vaping products, the, the vaping products came. So their, their premise is that if you if you ban flavors, You'll lose the you, you'll lose vaping and you'll lose the gateway effect and therefore smoking will go down. But actual empirical evidence where this measure has been tried showed that smoking shot up and it wasn't a small amount. It like nearly doubled um, in you know in a year after the uh, or sorry in the two years 
between the, the survey where there was no flavor ban and the survey when there was a flavor ban. So it's a non-trivial effect. Now, someone in Health Canada should be, you know, clutching their pearls or, you know, holding their brow and going, oh my goodness, what on earth, what on earth are we doing here? Um, and realizing that what they're really doing is making Canada's most successful anti-smoking method less appealing. It makes no sense. It just makes sense. And be, as you say, because of a, a powerful lobby of, of relatively small number of academics and activists who just feel that there ought to be restrictive measures on everything. So in the cost-benefit analysis, both in nicotine concentration restrictions and the flavor ban, Health Canada has admitted that they expect a sizable majority, well, maybe not majority, but in the 10 to maybe even greater percentage of vapors to not either transition to the lower nicotine or to not transition to just the yucky flavors that they're going to allow to be on the market. And so they admit that some of those people are going to go back to smoking. So did they then uh, factor in that cost uh, as well to this program? Well, well yes, uh, they, they, kind, they kind of do because they sort of net it, they net it out. They say the savings from the sort of youth, the, the, the youth kind of uh, will, will surpass that. And they've done a little sensitivity analysis to show that they're, but you haven't, you, that their numbers are robust, but they have to assume that gigantic gateway effect which effectively overwhelms the impact on adults by a much delayed benefit to young people uh, arising from you know not having this gateway effect. I mean, what they'll end up with is both a hit on young people who where there'll be more smoking and adults where there'll be less switching. And as a result, they'll end up with more disease and more premature death, not less, uh, unless they reverse it, which they should do if they read the evidence that's been put before them, not just by me, Abrams, Noyora and Sweena, but by many others as well. I mean, it's just, a, it's very frustrating that they're doing this. And particularly when Canada was on such a good path in 2018. What's your sense among tobacco control experts that are pro-harm reduction? What's your sense in terms of the frustration level or maybe sense of outrage? Well, it's coming out in various ways. I mean, these people are conservative um, in small sense, small C sense. Uh, there's a lot of bullying goes on in the tobacco control field. So many of them don't like to speak out or someone will accuse them of being an industry shill or be kind of mean to them in other ways. Um, there's, you know, there's tricksy stuff with grants and, you know, who's, um, you know, who's favored by the funding bodies and everything. So people are generally reluctant. But there's some very good signs. Um, most notably, the 15 of the past presidents of the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, which is the main kind of professional academic body uh, in, in this field, wrote a really excellent essay in which they said, look, come on, we've got to understand the harm reduction benefits and we've got to we've got to take a more nuanced view of both the risks and the opportunities and they went through many of the arguments about the gateway effect uh about uh, youth vaping uh, about the fact that um you know youth vaping frequent youth vaping is concentrated in the kids that would probably have been otherwise become smokers or were smokers 
They've set all of that out in a very erudite um, essay, which I recommend to everyone, especially Health Canada, um, that they read that and recognize that that isn't the pro-harm reduction faction. That is the center of gravity. 15 past presidents of the um, SRNT is you know, essentially the, the, the top echelon, the you know, globally respected leaders in tobacco control, moving towards a more pro-harm reduction position. Now, it's a shame that Health Canada could have been out there in a leadership position. It now needs to read that paper, rethink, and get itself back into a leadership position instead of heading in the opposite direction from where all the expert um expert advice is going do you think it's a little too too late well you know um never say never i mean it's very late in the proceedings i mean they've drafted up a law um they've gone through this sort of you know fake justification for it that looks very sophisticated and clever but isn't um you know those are late stages in any policy development process to see a major U-turn. But we've seen a major U-turn before. I mean, they they were heading in the right direction before, and they got this one paper that came out, and that derailed everything and got them looking for evidence of problems rather than opportunities. Maybe, maybe the San Francisco experience, if they take it seriously, will have a similar catalyzing effect and move them in the opposite and right direction again. I hope it does. Um, some great people in in Health Canada, and they they could really, in my view, they could really um, you know make a good harm reduction policy fly in uh, in Canada, and actually you know take up a leadership position. And you know, in Canada, when Canada does things right, um, is very influential internationally. It plays a it plays it punches well above its weight in the. Um, uh, WHO framework convention on tobacco control. Uh, its experts are respected and listened to. If it does the right thing, it could have a big effect internationally. But at the moment, unfortunately, it's doing the wrong thing. And my concern is that it'll have a, a big effect internationally in favor of doing the wrong things. Right. Because, I mean, obviously, clearly, this pressure that's going on, it's not just in Canada. This is a global thing. It's a, it's a global thing. It's not just in Canada. Um, there's a lot of money behind it. I mean, Bloomberg is piling in the dollars worldwide. But more important, and I'm not accusing anyone in Canada of, if, you know, of taking that sort of money or anything, but more importantly, there's a kind of groupthink in tobacco control, which, you know, top advocates in, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the Canadian advocacy organizations have bought into. And I wish they would just, you know, get back to the mission. The mission is about smoking, disease, premature death, uh, uh, 1.2, uh, you know, 1.2 billion smokers, 8 million smoking related deaths per year, overwhelmingly caused by smoking. Get back on mission and look at how Canada and then the rest of the world can get that appalling toll of disease and death down as rapidly as possible. And we have the sustainable development goals as a as a, a motivator to do that. So 
countries are supposed to reduce um, non-communicable diseases, you know, cancer, heart disease, respiratory illness, diabetes. They're supposed to reduce those diseases by one third by 2030 compared to 2015. They're not going to come close to achieving that unless they rethink their strategy on smoking um, and really use harm reduction to drive down smoking rates rapidly because you can do that because you're not asking people to give up nicotine. You're just asking them to give up the disease-causing delivery system, which is easier for them to do. You use that strategy, combine it with the traditional tobacco control measures, and you've got a winning formula. You've got pressure from traditional tobacco control measures, and then you've got a route out of smoking um, that's easier for most smokers to take. And therefore, you can start to get the health benefits much quicker, get the smoking rates down faster and deeper. Why they don't want to do that, I don't know. I, I, know, I know many of them, and they're good people. But I'm afraid I think they're existing in some kind of groupthink that is denying the efficacy of this approach. What is the case for flavors? Why are they so important? Look, flavors are really important because, well, all, almost all vapor, vaping products sold are sold with a flavors of some sort. There are very few uh, that are sold unflavored, and usually those have flavors added to them later. Um, tobacco flavor is a flavor. Uh, it doesn't taste like smoking. It tastes like some, some kind of hybrid of tobacco leaf and cigarettes or something. Okay, everything is flavored. The, and, and the question you're asking is a little bit like asking, what's the case for having different toppings on pizzas? Um, you know, you all pizzas, you could just have a margarita pizza, and that's still a pizza. Everyone who likes a pizza could eat that. But actually, the joy is being able to choose the flavor that you have, change the flavors that you have, experiment with new things, find ones that really work for you and you like the taste of, and also things that get you away from smoking. They get you into a place where you're not doing the familiar things that you used to do when you, when you smoked. So if you happen to like key lime pie or you happen to like, um, you know, um, cookie dough or you happen to like, you know, brandy or whatever, that's your call. If that works for you, that's the, that's the flavor that's getting you off cigarettes and that's a big win. And we know that adults um, overwhelmingly prefer non-tobacco and non-menthol flavors. There's plenty of evidence for that. And once they make the transition from uh, smoking to vaping, they'll often start on a tobacco flavor and then migrate away. And what they're ultimately trying to do is get away from the sensation of tobacco use altogether. So having the only products that they can get their hands on being tobacco flavor is ridiculous. It is an insane thing to do to confine the vaping products to the one one or two flavors that most likely remind you of cigarettes. It's just nuts to do that. So that's the, that's the essence of flavors. They're essential component of the value proposition that vaping provides to smokers. And therefore, the better the mix of flavors, and there's again, empirical data that supports this, the better the mix of flavors, the more likely it is that people will be able to switch successfully from smoking to vaping. And that's where you get the big public health win. If you ban flavors, you're doing a lot to degrade or destroy that value pr proposition. So expect to get more smoking.
with Health Canada's proposed flavor ban, it's not even just the banning of the flavors for the flavors that they are going to leave on the market. They're banning anything pleasant. So no, no sugar, no artificial sweetener. So it must be repellent in a way. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, we, in, our, in our evidence submission, we didn't focus on this, but the way Health Canada is implementing this takes the madness to a, like a new level. So they're going to have what you, they're not just saying, well, you can't use apple flavor. They're saying you only can use the following flavoring agents uh, or additives. So they're kind of adopting a whitelist approach, which they're going to construct from, um, you know, flavors that they think are suitable for the market. But what do they know? They, they, they don't know what appeals to smokers. The market tells you what appeals to smokers. Experimentation and innovation tells you what works. Um, and when a company finds a good formula and the smokers like it, then they switch. You know, some bureaucrat working out a schedule of chemicals that you can put in has no idea what they're doing, basically. I mean, I, I agree you should ban chemicals that are carcinogens, mutagenic, cause birth defects, respiratory sensitizers, fine. If the if the products are if the chemical agents are toxic, fine. Schedule them, blacklist them, brownlist them you know, put controls on them. But don't try to second guess the market with a kind of chemical recipe sheet of this is what you can make and hope that it will have any kind of credible appeal to smokers when when people try to make flavors out of what you've permitted. I mean, how does a bureaucrat in Health Canada know what is going to actually work over the next few years as a way of persuading smokers to quit by having a nice flavor to switch to? The answer is they don't. So they're just blundering around in the dark. They're specifically regulating sensory perception. The, the people campaigning on youth flavor bans used to talk about gummy bear and cotton candy and these, these flavors that had names that sounded as though they were designed to appeal to kids. Now, in a massive stretch and scope creep, they have gone from talking about kiddie flavors being things named gummy bear or cotton candy to them being anything that isn't um, uh, menthol or tobacco flavor. And in doing that, they've greatly expanded the scope of these flavor bands from what you could just about argue was reasonable um, using uh, branding or brand names that appeal to children to something that is essentially as near as they can get to an outright prohibition without getting to an outright prohibition. Now I'm gonna read um, a, a short uh, couple of lines here. And this isn't being political. So people got to get out of their brain when you hear centralized administrative state. Well, I'm not being political. That's descriptive. And we are, in, this is a centralized administrative state. The centralized administrative state becomes the tutelary power, which alone takes charge of assuring men's enjoyments and watching their fate. This power is absolute, detailed, regular, far-seeing, and mild. It would resemble paternal power if like that it had for its objective to prepare men for manhood but on the contrary it seeks only to keep them fixed irrevocably in childhood it willingly works for their happiness but it wants to be the unique agent and sole arbiter of that 
It provides for their security, foresees and secures their needs, facilitates their pleasures, conducts their principal affairs, directs their industry, regulates their estate, divides their inheritances. Can it not take away from them entirely the trouble of thinking and the pain of living? Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't heard that. Who is that? Is that John Stuart Mill? No, but close. It's to Tocqueville from Democracy oh, okay. in America. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's a br that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see the fit with America. No, that that is quite something. I mean, I, I I tweeted about this the other day. There's a kind of almost comic absurdity uh, about sort of puffed up officials and politicians, essentially doing something as weirdly banal as micromanaging the flavor choices in vaping liquids, so as to in their mind, control who uses the products and for what purpose. I mean, when you think about what they're doing, it's like, oh my God, have you got anything better to do? Um, but also, it's obviously doomed to fail. Nobody has that degree of control over individual choices. And, you know, the one thing that's missing in, um, in uh, Health Canada, or one of the many things that's missing in Health Canada's reasoning is any sense that they have awareness that people act with their own volition. You know, they have agency in this and they will find, they will not react in a compliant way. They will not just do as the state tells them to do. And I, I sort of joke about this, that at the back of the mind of these officials, they think if they ban flavors, you know, the kids will stop vaping and that means they'll do something else like more homework or learn the violin or, you know, or, 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 or take up, you know, exercise classes or something. They never, ever really think through the actual likely behavioral responses to these interventions that are, you know, micromanaging and highly controlling um, and that they think will control the behaviors in the way that they want. But actually, people just don't do that. They buy, look, look what happened with Juul in the United States. You know, a massive amount of bullying of Juul goes on. So they take the pod products off, uh, the flavored pod products off the market. And then FDA says, okay, you can't put any flavored pod products on the market for anyone. Kids don't go, well, that's it. I really love pod, flavored pod products. I'm now going to, um, you know, I'm now going to take up uh, jogging. They, they bought Puff Bar disposable or, you know, illicit pod products instead, which have a lower quality and cause more problems. You know, unless you can really work through the behavioral responses to these measures, you've no idea what you're doing. And they don't do that. They're blundering around. How do they know that when Health Canada bans flavors, there won't be chains of aromatherapy shops that are set up selling flavored uh, flavored liquids that don't contain nicotine? How do they know that there won't be a black market or there won't be more home mixing or there won't be more cross-border trade or there won't be trade from um, Native American reservations or there won't actually be criminal supply chains that actually bring in kids who are currently obtaining these products uh, from friends or legally <laughs> and actually make them part of criminal supply chains for THC vapes and even harder drugs? How do they know that they won't find that you get a, a entrepreneurial but criminal infrastructure building up to supply these products? 
Brent, they have no idea because they have no idea what they're doing. They're trying to micromanage behaviors in the way de Tocqueville describes, but they are clueless about what that will actually lead to. 